these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Well, it is, it is a... A delightful pleasure and a deep honor to be able to be with you all this morning. Um, we have been so grateful for the connections over the years. I was reminded of the, you know, how many they are when an, Ananda came up and greeted me. I had the privilege of, of officiating her and Joe's wedding a long time ago. And um, of course, Michelle and Jonathan having such a large part in getting the DOC after school program off the ground. Eric Miller continues to keep the Wi-Fi going, which means an awful lot to my wife right now. I mean, and, uh, and just through the years, the many expressions of support for Neighbor Up Brevard and its various expressions in the Booker T. Washington community as well as in Palm Bay. So as Jerry gave that incredible introduction, I do have to say that um, Fishing with Jerry has really been incredible. Just when I feel that life is a little too heavy on my shoulders, somehow Jerry seems to, to reach out. We get together, go fishing. We have lots of laughs. Occasionally, we score big on fish, like these mahi. Yeah, you, you knew I was going to show that picture this morning. That was just this past spring. We had waited a long time for that kind of day. But, but even if we only catch a little snapper, Jerry makes it memorable. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Brother, your friendship is quite a tonic for me. And I, no, it's been, it's been fantastic. And thank you for the privilege of inviting me here and um, for sharing the gospel partnership as we've done. 
Yeah. So on this first Sunday of your mission week, we're not going to focus today on the missionaries that we send to places like this incredible uh, ministry in Ecuador we've just heard about. That will be the focus next weekend. Today, the focus will be a little bit more on the missionaries that we're becoming, that we're becoming. A covenant's mission statement powerfully expresses your missional purpose. I hope I wrote this down correctly. I watched, um, is this correct? Because I was listening to a message Jerry preached back in January. I just wanted to, to get to know you all as a congregation in a better way. I listened and I was impressed with this. So I wanted to highlight it today. Covenant Presbyterian's mission is bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. That's, that's a wonderful, succinct, memorable, you can, you can put that to, to heart, kind of even meditate upon that short phrase. And it's, it's so relevant to the time we live in because people of deep needs are all around us, even in our more prosperous neighborhoods. So many people are lonely and they're spiritually impoverished more than ever. God is sending us to disciple them. And so our focus today is more about the missionaries we're becoming. Now, this has always been the plan from the beginning. But over the years, over the centuries, in this cultural experience that historians now call Christendom, when from about the 4th century to sometime in the 20th century, in Europe, North America, other places where, where Christianity was the prevailing religion and practice and the culture that went on with that, we didn't need to think about ourselves as being missionaries. Missionaries were people we sent to places where people hadn't heard about Jesus. And so to embrace this mission, there really have to be two shifts in our, in our attitude, first of all, and in our lifestyle, secondly. <coughs> In recent decades, the first shift has to do with attitude because many of us have become so very frustrated as we've experienced what some have called cultural exile. We who are a certain age remember when nearly everyone went to church and most people, whether it was true or not, claimed they believed in Jesus. And now we live in a culture where about 30% of those polled in America say they have no religion of any kind. They're, they've been called the nuns, not the religious nuns, the non-religious nuns. And those same polls tend to show us that about 50% of adults under age 40 would be in that category, 50% of Americans. That's been a huge shift in my lifetime. It, it's like we've gone into exile without leaving our native land. Now, whenever I grieve this cultural exile, and I grieve it like you do from time to time, realization of how much has changed, I remind myself of Jeremiah 29, the passage Jerry just read. Nebuchadnezzar's armies had invaded Judea. They had leveled the temple. They had carried the Jews off into exile. Many of them were now living at the time of Jeremiah 29, in a pagan culture as an oppressed minority. 
And it was cataclysmic. It was devastating. It, it was particularly devastating because, because they felt like God had let this happen. They knew their sin. The prophets told them their sin had to do with the need for their refinement. And yet the links that God would go to let them suffer, to refine them, was devastating. And, and, and of course, they, they had to fight the feelings of hate toward those who were in the majority. Psalm 137 powerfully expresses their, their rage at times. The, the grief that then became rage, it starts off with grief. By the waters, or by the rivers in the ESV, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion... And then if you read through that psalm, the, the grief wallows up in them. And by the end of the psalm, it's a rant. It's sheer rage. It's scandalous, if you remember. I'm not going to read it now for the sake of the children. What it says the Jewish faithful person by the waters of Babylon wants to do in his rage towards those who now laugh at him for his Jewish faith. Now, those feelings were understandable. But when you read the other Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament literature from that time period, you understand that while the feelings were understandable, the Lord would not let them become embittered. He wouldn't let them stay there. He wouldn't let them turn inward. And through Jeremiah, the Lord gave his word that his people were to adapt. I'm going to read just a part of what Jerry read. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. The prophet reminded them that God actually wanted them to be in that situation and that God had a purpose. To paraphrase the Lord's message, and this is in the context of other prophets, the last part of what Jerry read was Jeremiah's negation of what some other people who claimed to be prophets were saying. And we, that happens throughout the history of God's people. There can be prophets, you have to... You have to uh, discern the accuracy of the prophets according to Scripture. There were prophets saying, the Lord wants to take us back really quickly. He wants us back where it's comfortable and where we have, our own, we have control over our own lives and our children's lives. And Jeremiah said, no, no, that's a false word. The word I have for you is that you're here to stay. Generations you are going to be here to stay. You're going to be uncomfortable, yet make this your home. You're going to be persecuted at times but I want my people to seek the peace and the prosperity of this city. It's a pagan city, but I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity for that. Because if you do, it will be a blessing to them and to you. He didn't say it, but his implicit message was, trust God. God's got a plan. Well, remarkable things happen in Babylon. Many of you know this. While they were in exile, the Jewish faith actually um, became, came together in such a way 
that a remnant of people actually embraced the covenantal promises like they had never done before when they lived in the promised land. It was in exile that, that the Judaism that was faithful through not only the, the centuries that followed with the Greeks and Romans, but also through the thousands of years that, and even through pogroms and genocide, that faithfulness we've seen in God's people, that was formed in Babylon. Babylon and its successor empire, Persia, yielded thousands of Daniels, thousands of Esthers, as the Lord refined his people. And when the time came, as was promised, that someone like King Cyrus would be prompted, 70 years later, there was a faithful remnant, more faithful than they'd ever been, that was able to return and rebuild Jerusalem and Judea. And of course, set the stage for the coming of our Lord. But there's another dimension to this saga that a lot of Bible scholars haven't, haven't um, talked about enough. And, and, and I wasn't even that aware of until my work at RTS. And that is, not all the Jews returned from Mesopotamia. Scholars are not even sure that the majority returned. We hear about the, the ones that did and, and the, the heroics and, you know, including Nehemiah, but, um, but many stayed in Mesopotamia until the present day. There are Jewish communities that go back to this time. And in the centuries that followed, the Greek conquerors and the Roman conquerors scattered Jewish families far and wide so that not only in Mesopotamia, what we now call Iraq and Iran, but also in Egypt, North Africa, Asia, Europe, all across the lands of the various empires, there were Jewish communities living out what it means to be a covenant people. And by the time of Jesus, Judaism was a diaspora religion and culture, minority status. And you might think, well, how's God at work? You know, it's not really gotten any better. They never really, even when they return to their homeland, they still live under pagan oppressors. But God was at work. Isaiah heard and proclaimed God's larger purposes. Isaiah 49.6, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's too small a thing. <laughs> I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God had a plan, and it came to be known as the Gentile mission. While bringing some Jews back, the Lord kept many other Jews dispersed so that there, in proximity to Gentiles all over, they could be a light to the Gentiles and that his salvation as it unfolded in fulfilling the promises that we know as Jesus Christ, that that light could be in the communities all across the empire. So here's how that Gentile mission played out. By the time of Jesus, synagogues dotted the empire. Those synagogues not only hosted Jews, but the, those synagogues often hosted previous, previously 
idol, Gentiles who previously worshipped idols. Those who were, who were raised in the culture of paganism. These former pagan idol worshippers who chose to attend the synagogue with Jewish people in these places all over. And in some places we're told there were more of them than there were the Jews. They had become disillusioned with the pagan gods. They came, they came to understand, as I think people can still come to understand, that these alternative spiritualities that are merely an expression of human appetites and human visions of grandeur are in fact like a cosmic soap opera. They came to understand that these so-called religions were simply human projections of how to oppress people and get your needs met. That they were fake. They were false. They were disillusioned. And so, you know, they came to the synagogues to learn about this courageous people who had actually thrived in being a minority, who were faithful to their God, who seemed to believe this stuff. And they talked about a God of truth and beauty and love and justice. And particularly if there were people who were on the bad end of the cultural pyramid, the bottom of the cultural pyramid, they, they, they were intrigued with a God, as we were singing this morning, who's a liberator, who breaks chains, who brings justice to earth, who has a plan for the welfare of every human being. And that's still so intriguing. Particularly when people have been immersed in paganism and then they recognize how empty it is. There were so many of those people. Now, some of these pagans converted to Judaism, but that, of course, very costly, not only because the men submit, had to submit to circumcision, but of course, it, it led to full break with their families often. And so many of these Gentiles worshipped as Jews and yet didn't fully convert, and they were called God-fearers. You remember in the New Testament, we have pe people like Lydia and Cornelius and so many others that are just named God-fearers, Gentiles who were drawn to Judaism. So let's fast forward now to the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has filled that small band of disciples with power. The risen Lord now lives, although he has ascended into heaven, the risen Lord lives powerfully in the lives of the people who've embraced him as their Messiah and Lord. They start gathering in communities, the, the the explosion of Pentecost, seeding the beginning of the evangelization of the Roman Empire. They literally obey the Lord's command, go and make disciples of all nations. So some of them, the leaders who were sent and supported by communities, they went to cities all over the Roman Empire. Now when they went, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, others of these apostles, when they went into a Greco-Roman city, where did they first go to proclaim the good news of Jesus? The synagogues. They went to the synagogues. That's their pattern. Part of it was, God had told them, the Jewish people should hear that their Messiah has come. But the Lord knew there was another practical thing, and that is that not only that Jewish remnant, but also those God-fearers would hear in the synagogue about the way that God's promises to Israel had been made complete in Jesus in a way that would 
ultimately unites different cultures in the worship of one God. Now, why were there synagogues conveniently located all over the Roman Empire? Why were they there? Because God providently used the Jewish exile to spawn hundreds, thousands of covenantal outposts. In other words, the Lord had set the table. In each synagogue, a portion of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles welcomed the news that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah and the risen Lord. And from these synagogues, house churches sprung up all over the Roman Empire. Now, now can, you, can you see why I'm recalling all this ancient history? Because it's such relevant news for where we are. With prayerful, hopeful vision, I think we can see divine purpose in our contemporary cultural exile. As we do the work of grieving Christendom's death, and being frustrated and sad and sometimes angry because of the ways that some of what we think of as true are no longer recognized or affirmed in our culture. Let's also embrace the Lord's purpose. The Lord wants to refine us, and the Lord wants to send us to reflect his light to the Gentiles among us. So it's worth asking, What do the Gentiles see when they see us? Do they see people who bear the fruit of the Spirit? Do they see people who are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? Do they see that fruit? If they don't see that fruit in the remnant of God's people in this culture, then let us ask God to refine us and to make us more like our gracious Lord. If they don't see that. And let's invite the Spirit to change our attitudes. Rather than resentment, let's welcome refinement. And it's also worth asking, where? Where will the Gentiles among us see evidence of Jesus? Where will they see that? When Nathanael questioned his friend's claim that Jesus was the Messiah, Philip said, come and see. That's John 1.46. To believe, people need to see. They need to see something of these audacious claims we make that, that God has revealed himself in a human being and it brings us forgiveness through his death on the cross. They need to, they need to see that One sociologist said, to believe anything, people need to see plausibility structures. I learned that at RTS. (laughs) Plausibility structures, yeah. Plausibility structures. People see a community that's living like Jesus and people acting like Jesus. They think, wow, that crazy religion that says we hold up the truth sacrificially and graciously, they've made that plausible by the way they act. So where are they going to see that? Where can you invite people to come and see? Well, you certainly can invite them to come and see that here, wherever you gather, the Covenant Church family. 
You certainly will want to invite them to come and see this new chapter of your life when you, when you move into that campus being built. You'll certainly want to. The problem is, and you know this, that so many of the Gentiles will not come and see. They will not come and see institutional expressions of church. They think they've seen it. We think, maybe you haven't. But many of them won't come and see. And that's why I want to highlight the second shift that I think is so important. And that is, rather than seeing the place that you gather in that, as the primary expression of church, increasingly to consider inviting people into your homes, to invite people into your homes. Because your home is where unbelieving co-workers and neighbors can glimpse your authentic life. That's where they can come and see who you really are and come and see whether, in fact, there is spirit's fruits, whether or not you just kind of, in this culture that's supportive and it's easier to act like a Christian here, whether there you have the fruit of the Spirit. When you are hospitable to people, that is grace embodied, and it's mediated through your personal space. As you know, meeting in homes was a huge part of the early church. Acts chapter 2 says, they broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Well, let me tell you, you invite people into your home to eat a free meal, you got their favor, all right? That's a great way to get the favor of the people. Missiologists have concluded that actually it wasn't speeches by people like Paul. It was actually the simple act repeated thousands and thousands of times of inviting co-workers and neighbors into their homes that was the most powerful way the Christian faith was, meet, was shared. So why not learn from the early church? In the warmth of our personal space, our neighbors can glimpse Christ's light. So as the Lord changes your heart, expect that the Lord will want to open your home. That's the second shift, which is so badly needed in this post-Christian era. Now, full disclosure, I didn't, I didn't believe or embody this until about six years ago. I didn't let Jesus have the lordship of my home until well along in life. Previously, I was all about engaging neighbors on the campus of our Presbyterian church, inviting people to Christmas Eve services and vacation Bible school and all the, all the activities in between. But our home, for me, our home was a haven. I needed it to be a haven because I gave so much, you know, at the corporate expression of our church other than a once-a-year Christmas party for officers and other leaders in the church, in our daughter's birthday parties, I was inhospitable. I hate to give you such a graphic image, but I think you'll understand. I did a lot of yard work at one period, and I realized about myself that as I was planting lots of bushes in the front yard, when people walking dogs would walk by, I would deliberately turn and give them the backside. Is that on camera? Give them the backside <laughs> treatment. I literally did that because I just didn't have the energy or interest in engaging them. So partly because of graduate work I was doing 
Isn't it interesting how Presbyterians have to study something to, to change? Well, anyway, partly that, and partly because I was seeing that the programmatic stuff in my former congregation didn't have the same impact. It wasn't working as well as it had worked back in the 90s and early 2000s. Partly I'd realized that I needed to make a shift. And at the same time, Lynn and I had made a personal decision while I was at my Satellite Beach campus to move from Satellite Beach and build a house right on the edge of the Booker T. Washington neighborhood. Part of it was, was supporting Lynn's call. Part of it is I was talking about how we need to be, go where God sends us, and I felt I wanted to support Lynn by living in the neighborhood. She had gone across the causeway you know, to provide hope with her colleagues for so long. And so God led us to a, a lot where we built a house on a street where Habitat later built 14 houses. And it's been, it's been the coolest thing. We just enjoyed it so much. And in that new house, we started making a shift in our lifestyle. And, and we began to prayer walk. We've been be able to invite neighbors, first of all, just small numbers of them over to eat. And then there was a completely unexpected change. I ended up leaving my Presbyterian congregation. And as Jerry said, I started a missional network called Church in the Wild. And we're small, but we meet in homes. We have ministries in breweries, and we meet at parks. Now I spend, some weeks I spend as much time in house preparation as I do in sermon preparation. I have to take Romans 12, 13 to heart. Practice hospitality. Because I need a lot of practice. Now your situation is surely different from mine. Nevertheless, let me encourage you to spend some time praying over whether the Lord is truly the Lord of your house. Mission starts in the home. It was always meant to be that way. So instead of living in sort of a Christian ghetto, pray about how you could welcome unbelievers into your life by opening your home. You might start with a meal or a barbecue once a month, inviting a few of your Christian friends, because it's good to have a handful of Christians who can do this together, even if they're in different congregations to do this neighborhood, to, to seed this thing and to invite your non-Christian friends. Families with kids who play sports with your children, the new family on the block, maybe a few co-workers. In your prayer time, ask the Lord to put the names on your heart that you should invite. Ask the Lord to show you the way. By the way, Dave and Sandy Beckwith have been friends for years, and I asked them about this, and Sandy told me about two books that, that her women's Bible study has used and recommended. Rosiera's Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Jen Schmitz just opened the door. And there's also that book that guy wrote, Build Hope, 40 Days with Nehemiah to Bless Your World. Copies in the lobby, right? So I want to close with a story that reveals how the Lord can harness your hospitality. This is sort of a tale from the wild, okay? <laughs> so not long after we began our personal shift into living more hospitable lives, Four of us who were Christians decided to hold a backyard barbecue on Memorial Day weekend. We had just moved there maybe a year before. We didn't know a lot of the neighbors, just some of the immediate neighbors. We thought, let's have a big deal barbecue. Let's invite a lot of people. So we printed up a little invite card, and 
we tried to think of all the things that would make it attractive. We, we jumped on Memorial Day weekend and thought, you know, um, we asked, even though it was not Veterans Day, we celebrated the veterans in our midst. We just, whatever we could to be winsome to people that are like, why are these people inviting me to a barbecue? We went door to door inviting people to come. Now, some of the responses were very cool. Other people were very interested. On the street behind us lived this couple that we had seen before, but we hadn't gotten to know. We'd seen them because they had this huge dog, like a mastiff, right? Huge dog. And they would walk it, and it would do its dog thing on our lawn, my new lawn, okay? And they didn't bother to bag it. That dog, they would have had to bring a double bag. But they just, I mean, I would have to go afterwards and, you know, shovel it up. And so when they opened the door, I said, oh, that couple, I recognize them. Actually, when we rung the doorbell, the big dog barked. Was like, you could, you could hear him fighting the dog, getting him in the cage. Like, oh, we've really inconvenienced them. The door opens. The two of them are looking at us. We make the ask. Complete silence. Complete silence. And then he turns and looks at her and he says, risk it. Turns out they made a killer smoked brisket and proud of it. And they brought that brisket to our barbecue. They also came a little tipsy, <laughs> but it was the beginning of a, of a neat relationship. By the way, the only spirituality we introduced that day is we, had a, we always have a prayer. And that always is, a, is a, just a very special moment. We invite people is it, we're going to pray for the food, and, and, but is there anybody we can pray for? And sometimes the requests have gone on for a long. You feel like you're in church. So that's all we were doing at that point. And they came to those meals. And then one night we were surprised by the doorbell. You know, we, we answered it, and as soon as we opened the door, tears running down their faces, they told us the news that he had inoperable cancer. They wanted to tell their friends who knew Jesus. They wanted to tell people of prayer. And they knew some people of prayer. And so in the months that followed, we began to introduce more Bible teaching into the gatherings. We began to form more of a, of a community. I wouldn't call it a fully functioning church and a home, but it was, a, it was definitely a missional community. And this couple renewed their commitment to Christ, and within a year, we celebrated his resurrection. Now, I'm not standing up here to promise you that if you open your home, that, that, that it'll be easy or there'll be a lot of dramatic conversion stories. You know that. But, you know, I'll just say, for disclosure, we've had our share of disappointments. I mean, church people can disappoint you, right? Pagan people can disappoint you even more. Let me just, I'll tell you that, all right? As much as we've enjoyed friendships with people of, of some faith or no faith or anti-faith, you know, there, there can be a lot of baggage along the way. We've had, you know, we've had people that um, just reject us, totally ghost us, drop out, get divorced, fight among themselves, stop coming to the group because somebody else is coming. We've had all that happen. But to, paraphrase, but to paraphrase Eric Little of Chariots of Fire, when we live into this hospitality, we feel God's pleasure. 
We feel God's pleasure because it feels like we've started an obedience there in that, in this part of our lives. Nearly none of these neighbors previously participated in a church. Our gatherings, our church to them. Our home is a sort of sanctuary. And we enjoy it. I'm going to ask Nathan to scroll through some of these pictures. These are just um, some, of the, some of the larger gatherings. Mission starts in the home, whether your God-given goal is simply to find a more winsome way to invite people to be a part of Covenant Presbyterian Church, or whether God gives you the dream of leading a group in your home where God's word is shared and the gospel is proclaimed, and there's, your home becomes a sanctuary. Whether your dream is simply to invite people from Covenant, or God gives you a larger dream, the greatest thing you can do is to open your home because the Lord wants to refine you into a disciple who practices hospitality. And I really believe that in this season of cultural exile, there is no better way for us to let the light of Christ reflect from our faces. Let's pray together. Gracious and glorious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this message of truth and grace that has, that has given us joy and hope and new priorities. We also thank you for the legacy of church in all its various forms that has been faithful to share the good news. And even in, the, even in the, manif the myriad of sins that we confess from the way that the Christian faith was practiced sometimes in the years past, mixed with ugly parts of culture, we also, God, are just grateful for the faithfulness and your faithfulness most of all. We ask that for this congregation in this seminal chapter of its life, of, of being on this journey of meeting in this, public, in this public school, and in its um, anticipation of the new life and the new location and the new, new surroundings, that there would also be a recognition for this congregation that the men and women and the children, that that those folks are not going back. Not going back to a world where they pretend that, that the Christian faith is mainly practiced on the campus and the gospel is mainly shared there. Ask that you raise up leaders here and awaken people to begin to have conversations on how these next years at Covenant Presbyterian Church can not only be a church planting season, but also to be 
a home opening season. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.